I would love to have you take your Bibles as we uh, transition here to our time in God's Word and turn with me, if, with me, if you would, please, to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. I know that comes as a complete surprise because that's what we're, where we're spending our summer, of course, book of Daniel, and I know you're getting good at finding it. But we want to we want to come to chapter four today. As you find your way there, I'll encourage you to pick up sermon notes. If you missed them on the way in, you can find them on our website and um, take a quick look at them there. But that would always be a help to you. Um, a couple of comments as we head toward our time in God's Word. First, my welcome as well to those of you who are joining us on our live stream. It is always good to know, uh, to hear from many of you who are worshiping with us here in this area and even around the world. And we welcome you and are glad that you're with us. I hope that all of you have enjoyed in some measure this Independence Day weekend. I, I realize that sometimes when there's a lot going on in a country, it's possible to be so occupied with uh, the ruckus and the difficulty and reminders of our uh, weaknesses as a country and history and so on, that you end up hanging your head in shame and it ought not be that way. So um, with with flaws and all, um, actually this is still a pretty decent country to live in. So let's not, um, yeah, let's not take a good look, absolutely, all of that. But at the same time, it's right to say thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So if you hadn't had a piece of pie or something yet, a piece of apple pie or some way celebrated, I think you should, and uh, breathe, a, breathe a prayer of gratefulness, so, so do that. Uh, also, I wanted to thank those of you who joined us for a time of prayer yesterday morning. It seemed uh, with uh, just a good morning to have a time of prayer, and 36 of you all did that. Nine to noon or so, we had those three hours covered. Many of you at home, uh, you with the Lord, and some joined us on a, in a Zoom prayer meeting yesterday as well. But thank you for that, and really good to spend the morning of Independence Day uh, giving thanks and praying for, for our country. So thank you so much for that. Well, we come today, of course, to Daniel chapter 4, and I, I'm excited to do this. I really am. I, I am I'm grateful for the chance for us to open God's Word together as always. But I think it's, it's good that we find ourselves in the book of Daniel right now. We see a high view of God and in our chapter today, the phrase, uh, the most high, the most high, of course, part of our artwork, and there for a good reason. Uh, if you have at times been uh, feeling the, the sense of being overwhelmed by all that's going on, and overwhelmed by the world, and overwhelmed by problems, this is really a good, another good chapter for us as a corrective and a reminder of good theology. What is God like? He is sovereign over all. He is, indeed, the most high God, and we want to remember that today. Um, I want to I pray for us, and then just a, a few introductory elements, and then we're going to jump right in. We have a number of things ahead of us here today, but, but I want to pray for us that God would help us in our time in his word. Would you join me in that, please? Father, as always, it is with great joy that we open the word of God together and come to the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God that is, is from you, you, its main author, and you working through human instruments to give us the scriptures, and we are so thankful. Uh, we rightly bow before you and say, not only thank you, but Father, would you help us? Help us in your word today by the Spirit of God to, to hear and then to love what we hear and see 
and then to be motivated by the Spirit of God to obey it, to live in light of it, and to respond to you from it. So, our Father, we, we come with great joy and say, our Father, help us. Help us here in our time in your word. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As always, on your sermon notes, you see uh, some words of review, reminder of where we have been in looking at the book of Daniel. I love this book. Of course, you remember two sections, really, chapters 1 through 6, narrative in style. We've spoken a bit about that. Chapters 7 through 12, uh, more apocalyptic in style. We haven't gotten there yet, but we'll talk more about some of those categories as we do that. But my goodness, a book of action and color, um, amazing things, the power of God uh, working through human instruments. I remind you here under the review section, the hero in the book of Daniel is, is God. Um, I so appreciate the, the people God uses down through history, all of them, clay feet, all of them areas of weakness. The hero in the book of Daniel is God, God most high. A uh, word or two about the text, and then we're going to jump right in here. 37 verses today, and folks, we're going to read them all, okay? They're going to be split up in different parts, but um, this, is, this is a real fun chapter. Now, as we, as we come to it, just a couple of things. I always like to see uh, a bit of instruction when it seems appropriate uh, for our own good, so that as we read and study the Bible ourselves, we do it well. Okay, now an example of that it would be a chapter like Daniel chapter four. Uh, it's a self-contained unit, and you'll notice that because there are markers in the text that separate it kind of as a unit. Specifically, the chapter begins with Nebuchadnezzar and some words of praise, and it concludes the same way. Nebuchadnezzar, words of praise. So it's kind of like a, a bookends, if you will, of a, of a larger section. Okay, so it kind of marked. As, as a unit, not only that, of course, but it's a chapter. But one other element I think is important for us. In narrative literature, typically it's telling a story. And there's a story told in, in Daniel 4. It's a self-contained story, really. It's connected to the whole. But there's a story told. And sometimes when people read stories, they approach them kind of like um, fairy tales or Aesop's fables, where you read a story and then everybody looks at each other and says, well... I don't know. What did that mean to you? And you say, well, I got out of it that I should be nicer to my grandmother. And what did you get out of it? Well, I think the main point was that I should save more money. And, and there's all this mess of what it means to us. And we're, we're, we're doing injustice to the text when we approach the word of God like that. Okay? God had a reason for giving us Daniel 4. There's, there's a meaning to the text. And our job isn't to just make it up. Our job is to find it. What is it that God is wanting to tell us here? Now, we, we have other parts of application, yes, then you can talk about your mother and saving money, et cetera, in application, but there's a meaning to the text that we don't just make up. And I think in this chapter, it's kind of easier because when we introduced Daniel, we pointed it out, in Daniel 4, there's a, there's a phrase repeated three times. So it kind of screams at you, hey, there's a, there's a deal here, so pay attention, and you'll see that. Almost word for word, verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. So it kind of, kind of yells, main point here, main point here. Kind of like your mother saying, you know, uh, put your coat on, put your coat on, put your coat on. You, you would look and say, well, what are you trying to say? Like, well, I'm trying to say put your coat on. And similarly here, there's something repeated. And so you, as a good student of the word of God, will say, Lord, what is it that you're wanting to repeat here for me? 
And I think, I think that that's, that's a good thing. Verse 17, 25, 32, all basically the same thing, that the living may know that the Most High rules. He rules over the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he wills, the sovereignty, the power of God, and his wisdom in ruling the world. So anyway, look for those things as we come along. But I'm going to read now verses 1 through 18 and kind of jump us right into the story. I put this on your study notes under the uh, very imaginative title, Scary Dreams Round 2. Of course, it's a throwback to Daniel 2, as we'll comment on in a minute. But let's hear the word of God then. Daniel 4, 1 through 18, we read this. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples... Nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God, there it is, the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. And I saw in a a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last... Daniel came in before me, he who was called Belteshazzar. You remember his, that was his Babylonian name. Uh, chapter 1, they took away uh, his Hebrew name or tried to, uh, that honored God, the God of the Bible, and gave him another name that honored one of their false gods. And so it's noted there in verse 8. Named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom, Nebuchadnezzar says, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, Chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the vision, visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretations. Uh, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was, was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw 
And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, and you, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Okay, we'll stop right there. Man, do you feel the pressure? Um, wow, do you want to be Daniel at this moment? Uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, now, several things here. I, some of these uh, I draw from the, the review notes that are here. You remember, of course, King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon at the time, uh, is, is the book opened. We mentioned that history would suggest that he was right about 30 at the time, and now some years have gone by. So he is, he is kind of right at the top of his game. Daniel, of course, coming into captivity from Judah, as a teenager or thereabouts, probably a younger teenager, and uh, there the whole 70 years of captivity. But a few years have gone by, so he's graduated from the University of Babylon now and is involved in the, in the political process as God so directed his life. And you'll remember chapter 2, right? Chapter 2, there was another dream. Daniel is a book about big things, by the way, right? Chapter 1, you have a big city. Daniel and his friends show up at a big city, Babylon, and then in chapter 2, there's a dream of a big statue. In chapter 3, uh, there's, um, oh, there's a really big statue. Uh, and then chapter 4, we have a big tree. So there are big things taking place in this book. But in chapter 2, there was a dream also, wasn't there? And you remember in that case, Daniel had to, had to receive from God what the dream was. The king didn't tell anybody. Now, there's debate. Either he didn't know it. Uh, he, he completely woke up and said, man, what an amazing dream. I don't know what it was. Or he did know, and he was testing everybody. So there's discussion in the academy about what really happened there. But in this case, he's going to tell, tell everybody what the dream was about. And it's a tree. It's this, a big and amazing tree. Now, you might think, well, he, he's just dreaming about things he's seen. He might have thought that to begin with. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had been a bit of a world traveler in his younger days, conquered kingdoms and so on, and on at least one occasion had been to the forests of Lebanon. And if you know a little bit of your history, you know the forests of Lebanon would be kind of like visiting the giant redwoods in Northern California. Big trees, big cedar trees in, in this case. And we know that because he wrote about it, and he was quite a guy, so when he... He, when he was there among the, the forests of Lebanon, he, uh, they cut down some trees. He had a hand in cutting down some trees and thought that was amazing. And we know that because he had some pictures drawn or sketched of I, you know, Nebuchadnezzar cutting down a big tree, which is fascinating when you think about it. Though, though a big tree, the one who cut down a big tree is about to be cut down to size himself, as, as of course we'll see. Now, um, Scary dreams round two then. I, I, I find this whole section interesting. We're going to head right to the next section. Verses 19 to 27 on your sermon notes, of course, a warning. There's a warning of judgment and there's a call to repent. And I will go ahead and read 19 to 27 then as we move fairly quickly through the text. Daniel then, whose name was Belteshazzar, was, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. 
the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven lived. It is you, O king. You've grown, become strong. Your greatness has grown, reaches to heaven your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the earth, or the tree, uh, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Wow. So a warning of judgment and a call to repent. Several things I want to say here Um, I am so captured by Daniel in verse 19 and my esteem for him rises when I, when I look at his response to an announcement of judgment. Now at this point, of course, Beltish, or sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, um, is still a pagan king. Uh, there's discussion of course, about where he stands with the true God by the end of this chapter. Is he a man of faith or is he not? But at at this point, um, probably not, it would seem. And he's about to be judged by God for his arrogance and pride. And Daniel is grieved. You see any interesting elements there? Uh, I find find it, uh, my, my mind goes to Jesus and to Paul. I gave you a couple of references here in your study notes. Um, I, I remember Jesus as recorded in, in Matthew uh, 20, what is it? 20, there it is, 23. Likewise, similar text in Luke 19, where Jesus, uh, at least it's stated in Luke 19, not so much in Matthew 23, but he, he grieves, he laments over God's judgment that's about to fall on, on the Jewish people. Matthew 23, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. Now your house will be left to you desolate. And then, of course, in Luke 19, as he comes toward Jerusalem down the descent of the Mount of Olives, and he weeps. He weeps over Jerusalem. Paul, reflecting a similar heart in Philippians 3, when he speaks of those who are enemies of the cross, he says, they're, he's, he says I, I, I tell you of these people now, even weeping, he says, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. They're in his destruction. 
Their God is their appetite. They, they're, they glory in things that they should be ashamed of. They set their minds on earthly things. And my, my point is, in both cases, Jesus and Paul, rather than kind of clapping their hands when God's about to smack people, he grieves over this. And I find a little incongruence here sometimes in the way, oh, dare I even say the people of God respond when God's about to smack somebody, or he does. And sometimes people kind of smile a little bit and say, well, at least they got what they had coming. You you ever muttered that to yourself? Forgetting that aren't you glad that because of Jesus, God doesn't give you what you have coming? Huh? The mercy of God. We want to be very careful about cheering at at the judgment of the wicked. Uh, we read in the prophets, I think it's Isaiah, where God says, I take no delight in the death of the wicked, only that they would turn and live. I, I remember some years ago really being provoked by that um, um, in the event of an execution. There was somebody, some, some person, I, I forget, but it was some years ago now, um, who was being executed for atrocious crimes uh, someplace down south, one of the prisons, and it was, made the news. And what also made the news, because that person was so notorious, was that there was some kind of a, a celebration vigil outside. And it was that. It was a celebration outside, cheering the death of this man. And there was a bonfire and at midnight when the execution took place, cheering and all kinds of things. And I, I, I really was bothered. Uh, was justice done? Well, I hope so. I hope so. Um, but at the same time, do we, do, we, do we celebrate a moment like that? Or do we weep? And I, I think the Christian posture, whenever God is is going to judge. I, I think the Christian posture would be to grieve. And so Daniel here is my point. Verse 19, uh, God has announced this guy is going to get cut down to size. And Daniel, rather than walking in saying, oh, king, you got it coming your way. No, he's, his, his heart is heavy. And he, he, he doesn't cheer for the uh, punishment that's going to come. And I, I appreciate that tremendously about Daniel. Um, and then he tells all about it. The tree is going to be cut down, and we, we read the details of this. It's not going to be completely destroyed. It's going to be preserved, but the tree is coming down, O king, and it's you. You're the king, and this terrible thing is going to take place. Okay, I want to step then to the next section. Uh, there's a call to repentance, of course, in verse 27. A call to repentance. Uh, king, I advise you to make a change. I want to read 28 to 33 which I have under the heading, and it happens. The Most High humbles a proud man. I want to I go there. But 28, 28 to 33, as we continue in telling the story, we read this. All this, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. When the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, here's the third time for this phrase, 
that the most high rules of the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Wow. What, a, what an interesting moment. Now, I mentioned earlier that this all, of course, is coming at a time when Nebuchadnezzar is arguably at the top of his game. Well, a couple of things. As he walks on this royal palace and looks around, what is he seeing? What is he seeing that causes such self-congratulatory thoughts to run through his mind? Um, well, history will tell us that Babylon was indeed a, a mighty kingdom. Uh, two, two, um, two gates, uh, gates, two walls all the way around, the outer wall, wide enough for two chariots to pass, them, pass each other. Can you imagine? Big walls to protect. The Ishtar Gate, um, absolutely magnificent. You can find today a replica of the Ishtar Gate at a museum in Berlin. But just absolutely fabulous in its description. Uh, animals carved in, just glorious through which you would pass to go into the city. Um, he, Babylon was, um, uh, was full of temples. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself oversaw the, the building of, of numerous temples. He had kind of a little, little habit that I think spoke of his arrogance. He had marked on uh, uh, this little inscription on a whole bunch of the bricks. Try this. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Next brick. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Next brick. You see a pattern here? Uh, archaeologists have found all kinds of these. All over Babylon. I am Nebuchadnezzar. You'd be like me and say, Jay was here. And marking it everywhere. If you saw that enough, you'd start thinking, who's this guy? And I mean, seriously. Um, that was Nebuchadnezzar. I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Uh, wow, taking a lot of pride in, in all of this. Uh, he rebuilt palaces. Built several, as a matter of fact. Um, he, he is famous for the hanging gardens. And here's the idea. One of his... One of his wives was from another country, and she missed the mountains of her home country. And so on top of one of these palaces, apparently a large item, he built mountains big enough to plant trees in and to water them. He, he had developed a, some kind of a hydraulic system to bring water up from the Euphrates River to water these gardens that he had built for, his, for this lady so she wouldn't be as homesick. Uh, called by, the, I think, the Greeks, one of the seven wonders of the world, the famous hanging gardens of, of Babylon. So, so as Nebuchadnezzar walked around on top of these palaces and walls, he, he indeed saw a mighty city. Things that he could say, I oversaw that, I oversaw that, had those guys, uh, those guys got eaten by lions, they didn't do a good job, or whatever he said to himself as he looked around the city. Glorious. Maybe, sun, maybe the sun is setting and the place is glittering and... There's that moment of self-adulation that says, you know, you're really something. And at that very moment, the voice from heaven saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you've missed an important press release. Your heart beats because I let it. Every day you wake up with my permission. You're like a mosquito. I could squash you like a bug. You're not all that. 
Now, I added, that's my interpretation of this, you understand. Voice of God. Oh, king, you're really not all that. Well, a couple of things I would want to comment on. I have uh, several things here on your study notes as well. I am very appreciative of verse 29, where you have one of the time markers. In the book of Daniel, you have a number of time markers talking about kings and kingdoms and rises and falls and so on. And here is one. At the end of 12 months, why is that such a big deal uh, in, the, in the telling of this story? There's the dream and then the, the call to repentance, and then 12 months goes by. What's, what's going on in those 12 months? We don't know anything about them, just calendar months went by. And I find here a statement about God um, that accords with the rest of the Bible, the patience of God, the patience of God in, in waiting. Certainly Nebuchadnezzar, I suspect, was, was not a changed man after the dream. Who knows? Maybe he tried to turn over a new, okay, that's a pun, turn over a new leaf. It's a tree. Okay. No, forget it. Maybe, maybe he tried some self-reform, you understand, or maybe not. Maybe he just went right back to normal life. But there were 12 months that went by. Um, let me ask you, uh, most of us are very, very grateful for God's patience with us. And frankly, other people's patience with us. Isn't it wonderful? But how, how patient are you with other people? When, 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 when it's time for God to get them, when do you want God to get them? Huh? What is it? <laughs> yeah, immediately. Yesterday, if not sooner. Uh, now. Now would be good. When you pray for justice, you want it now. When you want God to fix somebody, you know who I'm talking about. <coughs> fix them now. And sometimes months go by. And we say, Lord, I, I mean, are are you listening? You, you, they're still doing it. Well, in this case, the, the patience of God. Peter, of course, talks about this, doesn't he? Uh, the Lord is patient toward us, not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So, so for whatever reason, known, reasons known to God, he's waiting. Twelve months go by until this moment when it's time. So the patience of God, I put this on your study notes, that God is more patient than we are, yet his judgment is sure, his timing is perfect. So there was a moment when, when God said, and it is done. Just like the day, right, when, when Noah was in the ark and God shut the door. There had been years of waiting, years of warning, and then there was a moment, God shut the door. And I think through the Bible, you find examples of that, don't you? God's judgment, God's patience, God's patience, God's patience, and then there's an end. Okay? Well, that's here. Twelve months later, there's Nebuchadnezzar, makes one more uh, little jaunt across the palace roof and says, you know, I really am something. And, and it's time, it's time. Now, this, uh, this terrible thing takes place. His, his, his mind is affected. The kingdom is taken from him. People, um, people look at what happened to him where he, he acted like an animal or he, was, he, he lost his sanity. And people have proposed all kinds of ideas for this. I've read several of them. It's this kind of a thing, this kind of a thing. Today, we have psychological manuals, DSM-5 and so on, that would say, well, I think it was this. Immaterial, really as to what was going on with him, other than 
his, his, his mental state was completely altered, and he lived for a lengthy period of time. It would appear seven years. Uh, people say, well, how did, seven, how did you get that? Well, because it, it just says seven periods of time. It never does say seven years. So how do you know? Well, it's a best guess based on a number of time markers in the Bible. I feel exactly like that sometimes. I do. Um, carry me out screaming. It'll be great. Um, but we're, we're pretty sure it wasn't seven days be, or seven weeks because it had to be a long enough time for his hair to grow as long as eagle feathers. How long is... I mean, that's, that's a bit. And for his nails to be like bird's claws which is very descriptive, I guess. But in order for that to happen, you'd have to have a bit of time uh, take place. So seven-somethings for your hair to grow like eagle feathers at my age and position in life, that would be a very, very long time. Um, so seven years seems, seems reasonable to be eagle feathers, I suppose. I, I don't know. But that's the best I've got. But I, I wanted to say this as well. This, in this text, mark this well, please. In this text, uh, this kind of mental illness was, in fact, a judgment of God. But we would be wrong if we were to say that every time there is a mental illness struggle of some sort, that that, too, is a judgment of God. Right? Absolutely. We, we are humans, and we struggle with all kinds of stuff. And many of us, more than, more than we might think, at some point in our life, have some kind of a struggle. We do, whether it's with discouragement or depression or all manner of other things. And in our church family, there are many who along the way either have or are struggling with some kind of of, of mental issue like that. Often those folks feel very isolated, like everybody else doesn't know about this, and there's just me, and unaware that in a church family this size, there's actually a whole number of people who are finding life pretty difficult to navigate. So it would be wrong for us to say, well, this was a judgment of God. Ergo, all mental illness must be a judgment. No, no, actually not true. Also, and I I note this on your study sheet here, just a, a word of caution to us. I do believe that God teaches us along the way in life. But I also believe that many times people overanalyze their lives to the point where you never, you're just almost immobilizing as though every single thing that happens is God trying to teach me something. Now, am I saying God isn't trying to teach? Of course, of course God, tries to, uh, God teaches us. I, I understand that. However, if every time you get a flat tire, you pause for a moment of introspection and say, I wonder what the Lord is trying to tell I got a traffic ticket or a parking. I wonder what God is trying to teach me through this parking ticket. Could be as simple as put money in the meter, pay the bill, move on. I got a late charge because I missed this. How come, what is God trying to teach? Just, just pay it. I mean, don't, don't. Don't work on this too much, right? We can spend way too long and it'd be strictly, I mean, completely immobilized by overanalyzation. So anyway, in this case, I would say though, because we know the backstory, uh, God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar something and mental illness in his case uh, of this severe nature was in fact, uh, a, 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 it was kind of the mercy of God though, wasn't it? It was a judgment of God, yet a severe mercy because it involved a change of heart. So anyway, uh, enough said. Enough said on that. Interesting, interesting season comes upon Nebuchadnezzar. All right, thirty-four to thirty-seven. Let's read the rest of that story and pull together some loose ends and transition just 
just a bit here. So here's what happens. Here's how the story resolves, like any good story. There's a resolution to it. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, which I think in, in the text and the way the story plays out is, is a moment of resignation or repentance or something like that, if you will. I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness. You see that? More greatness was added to me. Wow. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, is that the confession of a truly repentant, truly changed king? Uh, many, many have discussed that. Will we see King Nebuchadnezzar in God's heaven someday? Well, if I may, uh, you, you want to notice the marked contrast between his confession of praise, his doxology in 34 to 35 and so on, a contrast between that and his statement back in verse 30, which is all about him. Verse 30, he's saying, boy, I'm great. And now he speaks of his dominion, his kingdom, how God does according to his will, and he always does what is right. So there's a shift of focus, isn't there, from I'm really something to he's really something. So a, a God orientation. So the greatness of God, wonderful, I think is, is the point, of course, in verses 17, 25, and, and 32, that... that he would know the most high rules, the kingdom of men. Now, as we, as we think about this for our own day, um, this certainly, as you see in your study notes there, my comment about pride, uh, part, of, part of what's taking place here is God humbling a very proud man. Today, many would say King Nebuchadnezzar was a man who had good self-esteem. He had good self-image, didn't he? Did he have a good self-image? Well, by today's standards, he had a wonderful self-image. He said, I'm pretty great. And many would say, well, there you go. Everybody should think like that. Uh, God calls him an arrogant man and, and squashes him like a bug, right? Um, it's a much bigger discussion than we can uh, jump into today, this whole business of, 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 of self-image and good self-esteem and so on. But I, I'm hoping that you know the difference between um, Humility and arrogance. Oh, yeah, humility and pride. Humility and arrogance. I hope you know the difference. When we talk here about good self-esteem and God calls him arrogant, I hope you know the difference between the two. I, I, I believe so much, and this is just a, a nod to parents, that we do our kids a much greater favor by helping them to, to grow in their understanding of the greatness of God rather than the greatness of little Billy. Um, I don't, I don't, whatever your child's name is, I don't think that the main thing your kid needs is you to run around and tell him how wonderful he is because someday somebody's going to knock that block off his shoulder and it's going to be devastating. Your little Billy thought he was amazing. He really wasn't that amazing. He was kind of average. And if, if his self-esteem, so to speak, is built on him being amazing, um, one day he's going to find out he's not that amazing and it's over. 
Well, guess what? Um, God is amazing. Your identity is in him. You are made by the hand of a loving God. You're designed by him. Every gift and ability you have is from him. See, nobody can knock that off your shoulder. That's, that's the best place for what I'm going to call poorly self-esteem or self, self-image. That's the image we want to build in our kids is God is great and he made you and redeemed you and loves you. You see how great God is? What a wonderful God we have. Um, uh, I, I just think we err when we spend all of our time telling our kids that they're great. I, 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 think, I don't think they are. I think God is wonderful. Do you understand what I just med- said there? You're not going to beat me up in the parking lot afterwards, are you? I, he said my kids aren't that great. No, I did. I did say that. God is great. He made your kids. We let, it, let it go with that, right? Um, let's get the order correct. And I, I think we're, we're wise to, to see a difference between what we're taught today is self-esteem. Um, the truly big picture, as I alluded to at the beginning in this story, though, is, is the bigness of God. Verses 17, 25, and 32. It's repeated over and over again. That, that, the, that you might know that the most, high, the most high rules, that should be a source of comfort to you today in this crazy world. No, the most high rules the kingdom. He, he does. He still sits on the throne. He holds the world in his hand. He still calls the shots. And as you see in verse uh, 35, none can stay his hand or stop him. No one can stay his hand. No one can interfere with the purpose of God. Do you hear? None can stay his hand. And by the way, verse 35, none can say to him, what have you done? Oh, dear friend, have you? Have you ever said this to God? What have you done? There's an accusation here, isn't there? Or what are you doing now, there's a questioning that is, is, you know, Lord, I don't understand. I get that. But an accusatory tone that says, God, what have you done? Says, in, a, in effect, I think I could do a better job of this than you. God, today you're doing a pretty lousy job of running the world. And right at that moment, dear friend, humble your proud heart. That is abject arrogance on your part for which you should repent. Seriously? You'll say that to the Almighty? God, I don't think you're doing a very good job. Let me ask you, how would you do if you were God for the day? What, are you all stellar at that? Pretty smart, aren't you? Understand all the movements of the kingdoms, the stars, hold the planets in their place, call them all by name, that's you, right? Understand the thoughts of other people from afar, Knows when they, you know when they stand up and sit down. You know the motives of their heart. You're pretty good at that, aren't you? Oh, you understand my the irony there. No, you don't. Let's be cautious. Even as we live in the presence of God, live before him, and things come our way and we say, God, I don't understand. Let's be careful in our saying, God, I don't understand, that we do not turn it around and say, what have you done? Let's be cautious in our own hearts about that. Well, Daniel chapter 4 is a book, is a chapter about the bigness of God and a man who thought of himself as a pretty big man. And God turns it around in the right order and says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not all that. I am. Let's live that way. Now, track with this. One of the biggest ways that you see the wisdom and the power of God is God 
guiding and orchestrating your salvation, your redemption from the beginning of time. His ability to call the worlds into existence and from the beginning of time to so guide all the way down through human history that at just the right time, Jesus would come and die for your sorry soul. A savior who would come and die in your place. Oh, the plan of God all through the years to bring that to fruition. A savior who would die on the cross in your place, rise from the dead one day yet to return and take us to be with him and eternity that we say begins. A God who can handle all of that is so wise and so good that you are right to bow before him and honor him. Now, today, uh, we are going to celebrate communion. I'll say a word about how we're going to do that in a minute. And that focuses us right at the work of Jesus, his death in our place on the cross, his blood shed for our sins, his body broken for us. And there we see the wisdom of God. And I am going to, in a moment or two, just read a very similar uh, New Testament text, similar in theme to Daniel 4. Uh, Dan, uh, Paul's thoughts at the uh, a very crucial junction in the argument of the book of Romans. I'm just going to read that in a couple minutes. So I'm shifting to Romans 11, verse 33. But I want to pray for us. And uh, then I'll say a word about how we will remember Christ in communion today. But if you'd pray with me, please. Father, I thank you so much for your work in Nebuchadnezzar's life in your humbling of him, not only for his good, but for ours. Is Even now, centuries later, we read the same story and we see your mighty power. And Father, I thank you for Jesus, our Savior. As we read in the book of Revelation, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And I, I thank you and praise you together, we do. And you are the God who could guide all the way through history and bring a Savior at just the right time in the fullness of time God would send his Son. I thank you for that coming of Jesus into this world, his perfect life, his redeeming substitutionary death, his blood shed for us, his resurrection from the dead. Oh, how we thank you that Jesus died for us. And today we want to remember Christ in, in receiving communion. And we ask for your help and you would guard our hearts in these moments as we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.